0: Dearly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together in your word. And I pray as we take a look at um, justice, we take a look at a pretty difficult part of Scripture and try to wrap our brains around what was going on at the time um, when you gave Saul this command and when he disobeyed you, you removed um, his kingship away from him. And so what it causes a lot of things to happen in our heads of why and how. And we talk a lot about the love that you have for us, the love you have for creation, the love that you have in sending your Son to the cross for us to be redeemed. And then we see these little pieces that can be very hard to swallow. So help us, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you will help us to see that you are a God that wants um, people to know that justice matters and that you're here for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take a look at justice. Um, and So the passage, and, and you have to have we got to have the big picture view. And you have to take a look at the goal. If the goal of God is just to have a party in heaven with all those who believe in him, if that's just his goal, then these things are not going to make sense to you. Um, There was a time early in my faith when I was attending a couple different churches up until my early 20s, and a lot of what I heard was... True statements, but it was really for the evangelistic fervor of you are loved by God. You are, God would go after the one sheep in, in spite of the 99. And all of the things are true when we're talking about God pursuing our hearts. But what it turned into, in my mind, in my heart, and I think it was a bit of a culture in the, the early 90s, that God was all about you. God was, you're the apple of God's eye. It's all about you. It's all about your happiness, all about you having everything taken care of, and and it really removed the glory and the sovereignty of God out of the theology that was being taught, at least to me, where I was at in the Midwest. And so when I I, I just started feeling pretty self-centered when it came to faith, it's all about me, it's all about my happiness, it's all about my health, it's all about my wealth, it's all about right skirting the prosperity gospel, that God wants you happy, healthy, and with a full stomach and lots of money for vacation. And that's not what I found in the scriptures. And so I was very confused until someone started opening my eyes up to the glory of God being the overarching goal of God, that his glory would be known. And as he saves us, as he pursues us, that his glory is made even greater because we realize that it's not about us, it's about him. And so that really changed everything for me. And so if, I, if we approach what we're about to read and go through, you've got to keep in mind the overarching big picture that it's about the glory of God and about people coming to Him. It's not about you, and it's not about your idiosyncrasies and what you think and what you feel. It's about God's glory being known, okay? So when we take a look at this passage and we read it, it is, oh, come on. but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Yeah. Pretty harsh, right? This was kind of a barrier for me um, early in my faith. I'm like, what? Because I came to faith and the love of God is what overwhelmed me, feeling part of a family, and then I'm going through and reading and hearing and I'm reading these passages and you, you can't just say, we can't be people, if we're going to be people of the word of God, we can't just say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament. We can't, we don't, we don't like that part. We're not going to read that because that's not, that's not honest. That's not fair. That's not accurate. And so what does, what is going on here? And so we have to take a couple steps way back. Nah, that doesn't matter. That was some graphic I found and it was just like, carry on and kill them all. But nobody, that's inappropriate. All right. We have talked a few times this summer about this passage. That when God spoke to Abraham and tells him, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He's going to bless Abraham, make his name great, make his people, the descendants we're talking about all the way into Samuel and Saul, make you great so that you are a blessing. I will bless you so that you're a blessing. So it it matters that any blessing that's brought to us is so that we would be a blessing to others. And so if you're going to put the counter to that, following Raina's direction earlier, if you're going to put a counter to that, if you're not a blessing to people, then there's going to be people who are a curse. And so God, in his acts of justice, is not only going to bless Abraham to be a blessing, part of that blessing is to stop those who would be robbing people of that comfort, of that blessing, of he's going to be, he's a God of justice. He's going to stop the attackers. He's going to stop the people that would come against innocent life, come against the people of God, so that you can be a blessing to bless others. So if we look at the promise, about 2000-ish, and I'll blow some of these up, but not all of them. They're just for visual reference. About 2000 BC, Abraham is told to leave the area of Iraq, Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, and he's told by God to leave and to go into the Promised Land. And so this is his journey and his travels around Canaan, or Cana, the Canaan journeys. He's going after the Canaanites. The Canaanites, this area where the Promised Land is given to the people of God, is a massive tribal breakup of all kinds of people. We'll see some of them in just a minute. But there's a consistent worship of the pantheon of the Canaanite gods, uh, the two that are most famous that we'll probably talk about today, you hear there's several in the Old Testament. Is Baal or Baal? You have Baal and you have Molech. They're the two that are most prominently seen in the Old Testament um, and what they do and how what happens and people that worship them and how God consistently says, <clears throat> "Stay away from these people. Stay away from people who would worship these gods. This is an abomination. Evil flows from this. Generational evil flows out of the worship of these gods." So Abraham is promised to go into this land. This land is promised <clears throat> to the people of God. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun has gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, "To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt, to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is also repromised in Exodus 34 to Moses. And the, the land is given a very delineated border. This is the promised land, promised to the people of God. And so you see here this green and purple, this whole area are the borders of the promised land. And so you have right here the land of Canaan, you have Gilead, you have all of these tribal, these cities are all laid out, but you have from the land of Egypt, which would today be the Sinai Sinai Peninsula, that this land all along the coast is all promised, all the way up into modern day Lebanon, all across, this is all promised to the people of God. And to this day, 4,000 years Ish, after the promise, this land is all still hotly contested, isn't it? But this land is promised to the people of God. And so Abraham knows his borders. This is all for him. This is all for his people, his descendants. And so this is about 2000 ish BC. The promise is there. You get all the hill country, all the land, you get all, and in this area where Canaan exists, all of these gods that are about sacrifice of people, sacrifice of children, sacrifice of, of your enemies. And it's an evil religion, an evil system of worshiping and moving and killing. And you can't do any history of the Canaanites and not read about how they would come through and they would kill innocent people and they would skin people alive and put their flesh on walls as displays like we would put an elkhead. That this land was full of constant battle, constant conflict, constant war. And innocent people were smashed in the middle of all of it. And so for God to tell Abraham, you get all of this. It's going to come with not not just easiness. They're going to have to fight their whole way through and conquer this land. So it would be a place of promise for God's people to be known. When you look at the land, and I'm going to focus in on this area here at the top, the northern part of the kingdom, the Jezreel Valley, you may recognize Mount Carmel right here, which if you go up to Mount Carmel, and I didn't dig into all my pictures, I can show you sometime. When you go to Mount Carmel and you look down over the Jezreel Valley, um, this area, so I'll go back one, this area here is all desolate and desert. This area here is all desolate and desert but you have the Jordan River Valley and you have the Jezreel Valley that connects into the Jordan River Valley, that this is a major trade route. The whole world went back and forth between the Middle East and Asia and the Mediterranean, came through this valley. We're constantly coming through this valley, going to the Jordan Valley, come through into Jerusalem, come over here. Like they, there was a constant trade. The Jezreel Valley, when you look over the top of it, you just see the crossroads of the world happening in the Jezreel Valley everybody is coming through here. Nation upon nation is coming through this valley. When we were there a few years ago, there's a military base that sits about right here, and the Air Force flies their F-16s in and out of this area, and it's, they're all underground. Like the hangars are underground because of the potential attacks and mortars coming from the north. Not mortars, it'd be artillery, but bombing. And so you can we are sitting on Mount Carmel, hanging out where Elijah had his duel with the prophets of Baal, and then we're seeing jets fly over. Like, this is still a hotly contested 4,000 years later. It's still a place of, you can just see the green and all the trade routes and the major highway, and it's still a, a major fought-over contested area. And so, why would God want the people of God to have all of this? Well, if Mount Carmel, the, when, when, you, when the prophets of Baal are smashed by Elijah... And there's people here on the trade route that keep hearing these stories. And the name of God hits the trade route and just continues to grow all the way through into the Middle East or comes back through and goes all the way through into Europe. And the God of the Jews is known by all of these people because he's strategically making all these stories happen in these areas. So the, the word just spreads. spreads like wildfire. And so not only is this land rich and able to sustain... But it's also a major area of population going in and out. And so God says, this is promised to you. Not just for sustainment of you, but for the name of God to be known throughout the world. So the Jezreel Valley is very important. You go into the southern part of the city, or southern part of this land, you have what's known as the Shepla, which is these, all of these little green areas. A real cool thing geographically happens when the warm moisture comes off the coast, and it hits these mountains, it cools off and drops as rain. So in the middle of, you have the desert here, the Dead Sea. This is all very desolate. But then you also have all this green that's flowing the other way. Essentially, dew keeps the growing happening all over this area. It's amazing. It, it's, a, it's a perfect microclimate of growing. And land of milk and honey is, is a real thing. That this area is so diverse, and it's in a tiny spot, that has the the potential to feed all of these people and all of these people prosper so that people would know that God is good. But in this area, it's full of terrible practices. Um, I think I showed this to you several years ago, but I'm going to show you again. This this was dug up from, uh, this is in Jordan. And so you had a child that was buried under the house. They say that the burial of infants in jars was a common custom in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Palestine. The jar was generally placed under the living room floor to keep the child within the family circle. Um, That's just trying to cover up the truth. That's not accurate. They did an archaeological dig and they don't want to own the darkness that existed in this area where they would sacrifice children and bury them under the floor of the house because that's how you'd be blessed. And so you have... God of Molech worshiped by the sacrifice of children and they would take them and put them in the basement because we see throughout the area um, they found bones of goats and animals. The same thing, the same practice happens all in this area where you'd sacrifice it. You you build a new house and you have a a ceremony, you want to bless your home, you sacrifice an animal and you bury it in the basement and then you build on top of it. So you've sacrificed to God in your house. Well, children were put in the exact same situation in the exact same way. And it was, you would sacrifice a child so the blessing would come to your house when you're sacrificing a child to Molech. And we've talked about that before, but so you have a practice where you would even bring, they had bronze statues with hands and you would heat up the statue. And then if you wanted blessing in your family, you would bring your firstborn child to the Molech worship and you would place them into the searing hot hands of the statue to sacrifice to the god Molech. And so you have Molech and you have Baal you have these gods that are the antithesis of human flourishing and what the God of Abraham is saying. You even have when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, he's following in, well, this God is this god's probably just making me do this. That's what the gods did in Cana. So Abraham takes his son Isaac and hauls him up, and he's going to sacrifice him. And in that instant, God says, no, 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 I'm not like that. That's not how we roll. I provide the sacrifice, and the unblemished sheep, the ram, comes out of the bushes, sacrificed as a forethought, as a foreshadowing of Jesus being sacrificed on the cross for the remission of our sin. It's God making a very clear sign to everyone who would hear that the God of the Bible does not want human sacrifice. It's an abomination, that Life is precious, and image bearers of God should be cared for and taken care of. And we will not allow this. That's what this is—the land that that we're dealing with. That there's all around this counter to life being taught. We see that Egypt, after Abraham takes it, King Tut, um, about 1480 um, BC conquers the people of God and hauls them off to Egypt, right? They're trapped in Egypt for a season. You probably did But it's right at the Shepla, It's right at, in the Jezreel Valley, the major battle happens. And so they're taken off into Egypt. And they're trapped there for about 500 years. And so generations of people are trapped in Egypt. And they're crying out to God, save us, free us from this. We've been promised a promised land Help us, let us get out of here. And God, through Moses, takes them out. But on the way out of the promised land, you have a... I mean, this is the journey all the way through the wilderness, and you have the circling because they rebelled, and and then finally led into the promised land. And there's a passage that tells us the first instance of the Amalekites. They are part of the Canaanite tribe. So they have Molech and Baal worship all through the Amalekites, we get the first instance of the Amalekites. So um, I won't read it all to you, but essentially, uh, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. This is the story of Moses' arms being held up, and his, his, when his arms were held up in praise, then they were successful in battle, and then when he was tired and his arms dropped, then they were losing. And so you have Aaron, you have Joshua holding up his arms and Joshua's in battle and you have um, Aaron holding up his arms so that he can continue to prosper and that the people of God would win. They're fighting the the Amalekites who are getting ready to talk about with Samuel and Saul. So you have at least a million strong Jews coming out of Egypt. Some people say way more than that, but we're just going to round it and say a million. And who's at the back of the train? Who's always at the back of the trail? If you go on a hike with... If we all went up to, and hiked to Snowy Mountain Peak, we went to the peak this afternoon, who's going to be at the back of the pack? Kids? People slow? People that maybe can't walk as well? Maybe people that need a little help? That's the back of the pack because they need a little extra time. And so the Amalekites see the Jews coming out of Egypt. Here's a million strong, here's all these people, and they go straight to the back of the pack and start trying to murder and wipe out the children and the affirm. And so the battle ensues in the protection of. And it's Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms for the battle to be won. Joshua, they win, but it's this is the first instance we see. The Amalekites were going after the weak and the innocent. They were trying to profiteer on a situation. They saw that Egypt has been trapped, so now it's our chance to come in and wipe these people out. Maybe they can be our slaves. And so God says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If you're going to attack the innocent, you're going to attack those who can't defend themselves, then God has something against you. We see Israel eventually out of the Exodus comes, and these are just it's a list of the battles. When they went in and battled all the way through to take and to gain the Promised Land, they went and conquered through the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all the way up and through, and then they moved westward. They take the Promised Land. So the people of God come through, and they after the Amalekites, and after forty years in the desert, they they come in and seize the Promised Land. That we see in Leviticus which happens, it was written after it in about 1445, we still see that the, the people are worshiping Molech. Leviticus is written saying these people are still worshiping these evil gods. We see Leviticus uh, continue and tell us that anyone who gives his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. That this, the Canaanite gods are still around. And they're still promoting evil. Continues again. If The people of the land do not at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death. Then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among the people, him and all who follow him, in whoring after Molech. You're, you're willing to sacrifice the innocent for your gain. So we see God continue to be angered towards these Canaanites. the the people who follow Baal, we can get into when they take the ark and they put it into the prophet of of Baal and then the head falls off and there's there's all these great stories of this, like God is consistently telling the people of this land, you're worshiping false gods, you're worshiping evil and he will not stand for it. So then in 1 Samuel 15, 1 to 3, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus said the Lord of hosts I've noted what Amalek did to Israel so this is all the way back attack the innocent it's a continuation of the worship of these false gods and these purveyors of evil practices and so he tells he tells Saul to wipe them out not is a just bloodlust not as but th- we're going to send a message to this whole region that evil will not stand. It's generational evil. This is the kind of evil that's taught from a young age. This think the worst Holocaust, whether it's Stalin or Mao or Hitler, that there's a generational teaching to wipe people out just because of who they are or for gain. And so God is going to send a message. He tells Saul. We're going to put a stamp on this right now. We want this whole region to know, we want through the, through the travel through the Jezreel Valley, the travel through this land, that this evil will not stand. That God is a God of justice. And all the way back from the Exodus into Saul being king, these people have continued to practice their evil and have continued to prey upon the weak and the innocent. And so God says, take them out. Now, if I take three steps back in my 2022 world and go, what? Can't you just, like, kick them out? Can't you just, like, tell them to leave? Can we figure this out another way? But God's sending a message. He's sending a message. And I have to trust that in his wisdom, And God's foreknowledge of everything, that these people were never going to change. They were not going to come from their ways. It's just like when I read in the book of Acts when Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead in the middle of a church service because they're keeping back money for themselves when they're giving money into the offering plate. They're trying to get the praise for looking like great people for donating all of their money, and they kept some back in their back pocket. They went up saying, we're giving it all away because we love the Lord, except for that uh, you know, 30% I kept for myself, just in case this doesn't work out. How could a God of love do that? Well, I have to, I have to put it all together that God knows. God knows more than I know. And I've told you before we've discussed this, Ananias and Sapphire, we see no repercussions from the family. We see no one weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see no one. God does not say through his word these two people weren't believers. So God was sending a message through these two people. He, I believe he snatched them up and took them to heaven in an instant and it sent a message to the church. Hey, just be honest with what you're doing. Don't just get the praise. Just like Jesus said, don't pray big lofty prayers in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't, don't walk around with your checkbook saying I am so giving. So people go, oh, what a giving person. Instead, just be honest. Just be honest. And so God sends messages that way. And I have to believe, because I know the totality of Scripture, well, I don't know it, but I've read it, that God is a God that loves and cares, and if He sends a message, it's not just haphazard, and it doesn't lead to destruction. So He's sending a message to, through these people that they the evil runs deep. This is about 931 to 7. 7- when all this is going on and the kingdoms and David and he's sending a message. We see that the battle happens down here in the south. Up north, if you look at the same time what's happening, the blue lines in the north is David running for his life. So the middle of this where David and Saul are chasing each other around and trying to figure things out and the promises and what's happening, then we have this encounter where Saul encounters the Amalekites all the way down in the south, and this is where he loses the favor of God because God wanted to use Saul to send a message to the world that evil does not stand. And what's he do? He lets them have the food, and his men take the food, and they're like, hey, this is a pretty good, you know, meat over here. We can't let this go. And he, let, he they, they do wipe out most everybody except the king. Why would you do that? Well, that's Saul wanting a king to be in his back pocket. Thank you for sparing me. Thank you. There's some pride happening here with Saul. And so when Samuel comes along, the prophet, and says, Nope, sorry, favor's been removed from you, and I'm going to correct this problem, he then goes to Agag... Like, Agag cheerfully walks in. Bring me Agag. And so he comes walking in. Yeah, I'm safe. I'm good. This is great. Like, my whole kingdom's dead, but I'm here, and I'm happy, and I'm going to... And then Saul hacks him to pieces, finishing what God had commanded, saying, this, is, this evil cannot stand. It cannot stand. So why all of this? Why would God do that? Why? Well, look at what happens over the course of the next several, the next century. The Assyrians come in and conquer and take over. They're kind of around the area of Cana, kind of around Jerusalem. Um, they conquer all the way into Egypt. This land has just been taken over from 900 to 600 by the Assyrians, the empire, and the war, the stories of God are going to flow through this. There's a continuation of God of justice. We have the Babylonians. We know what happens when the Babylonians take over. Um, They conquer in. You can see on the side, this is 626 to 529 BC. The Babylonians, Jerusalem's destroyed, going against God, taken into the exile, into Babylon. We know the stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and all the things we see in the Old Testament. And again, the stories of God and his justice are going to come through. The people of God are consistently warred against Conflict comes against them. Is it going to switch for me? We have the Babylonians. Ah, there it went. In Jeremiah, we see that Molech still exists and Baal still exists. Ah, went too far. Trying to paint a picture here. and my, My stuff isn't happening. Probably wouldn't. It's because it's an Apple device, isn't it? So we have the Babylonian Empire. And while in, after the Babylonian, well, during this time, in about 538, Jeremiah the prophet is speaking, and he talks again about Molech. He talks again about how um, they've turned their face, they've taught them, and they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal, the valley of the sun, of Hanom, to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So the people of God are chasing after Baal and Molech in some areas, sacrificing their children. It's still around. Then we have um, the Persian Empire takes over as well, 332 BC. So the Persians come in and attack, and you see this dotted line. The Persian Empire comes in and takes all the way across. More people coming in to attack. More times that God's people are still told to be a blessing even when they're being occupied. After these things, King Ashurus promoted Haman. So the descendant of Amalek, we believe, in uh, Haman, the Agagite. I think I'm going to say that right. Um, When you see the son of Hamadetha, when you research this out, these are descendants of Haman is a descendant of Amalek in a long family tree. All the way to Agag, the king that was cut to pieces, some people clearly escaped. And so you have this man trying to wipe out Mordecai and Esther in the story of Esther exposes what Haman is doing and he gets taken out that there is a consistency generationally to kill and wipe out the people of God by these Canaanites over and over and over again through history. Alexander the Great comes in about 334, be the intertestamental period, and t- conquers it all again. He comes in and takes it all. And through every piece of this, the covenant made with Abraham, this land will be yours, and you, are to be, you will be blessed so that you will be a blessing. So when I see constant and consistent conflict happening throughout this region to the people of God, continuing even into this day, and I see a God of justice trying to set markers and set things in motion so that the message would get out to the world, the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is not going to allow the killing of innocent, the attacking of people. He cares about justice. He understands the destruction that comes towards people, and he wants the world to know he's a God of justice. And then we get to us, understanding where this is all leading, which is in Romans. Most of us know Romans 3.23, right? There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why does He do this? For His glory. To show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. He was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. We enter the church age. God is not going to ask you and me to go wipe out civilizations as a sign of justice. In the Old Testament, that is what he's doing. He's creating a kingdom. He's setting aside a people. He's saying, here's the God of justice. I want justice to be known. But in the whole time he's doing it, he's also passing over other sins so that we land at that we need Jesus. We can't do this. We can't fight our way to heaven. We can't fight our way to know God. We can't fight our way to receive salvation. You see the constant attacks that happen to the people of God in their promised land. And even though the stories of God's justice spread through trade, spread through all of those conflicts, spread through all of the stuff that came at the people of God, it wasn't until Jesus, God the Son, steps out of heaven, dies for our sin that the people of God exploded and expanded around the world. You have thousands of years. I know there's a lot of factors and food and population growth. I get it. But You have the people of God contained in this area to be a beacon on a hill, to be a symbol to this region that's hotly contested, trade is everywhere, and then Jesus comes on the scene, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, the apostles are lit on fire, the apostles spread around the world, and then more and more people come to faith in the God of the Bible because of the sacrifice of the Son, securing our salvation, and people screamed it from the rooftops. That God really is a God of justice. He's such a God of justice that he's willing to take the payment for our sin to prove his justness. That should be together. His justness. Why? To to show that he's the king. If you continue on to Romans 3.25, I don't think I put it up here. I didn't. If you continue on, he says, well, then what's your boast? What do you have to brag about? You bring nothing to this table except humble submission, and the glory of God washes over you because of grace poured from the cross. So I can look back at 1 Samuel, and I can look at God's command to wipe out the Amalekites, and instead of going, "Eat What? What? And instead, I see the, the, the connecting line of justice from the beginning in Genesis when he had to remove Adam and Eve from the garden because they disobeyed. They went against him. There must be payment for that sin. The world's fractured and broken. Evil enters the world. Worship of evil gods that do evil things enters into the world. And the Creator says, I'm going to select a group of people They're going to be beacons of hope, beacons of justice, and they're going to do right by the world, by being a blessing to others. Now, the Old Testament's a story of consistent messing all this up, being redeemed, being welcomed back by God. What are you doing over and over and over again? Then Jesus, the ultimate example of how life is supposed to be, dies for us. Goes to the cross for us. Takes away our sins so that we can be with him forever. And because of that act of justice, the world knows who Jesus is. You'd be hard-pressed to go to a place in the world. I know there's some places in little corners of villages and towns and that the idea of Jesus is just completely foreign. There's some areas. But the world at least knows of Jesus Christians, knows of the church, knows of the God of the Bible. That only happened after his death, burial, and resurrection and lighting the church on fire. The church spread. Why? Because God's God of justice. Justice was had in his death so that we may be free. It's the same story. It's the same story. God's just doing it in different ways, but it's the same story. God's a God of justice. And even though he told Samuel to tell Saul, wipe out the Amalekites, we see in Esther, it didn't didn't work. Those descendants were still there. Those descendants were still trying to wipe out the people of God. But what has worked? What did work? What was the ultimate ending of this? Jesus. So when you read, when you read, Those hard passages that you see in the Old Testament where people are dying and there's war, there's conflict. You've got to look at it with the overarching umbrella of how does this lead to the people of God being blessed so that they are a blessing to others. If all you do is look at the conflict, if all you do is look at the war, if all you look at is the swords and the blood and the gore on battlefields, that's all you look at, then you will come away with, what are we doing? Who is this God that we worship? But if you can look at it with the overarching, how how is this a blessing? How is David killing Goliath a blessing to the world? How is this attack a blessing to the rest of the world? How how does this lead us to want Jesus more than the conflict? You've got to ask those deeper questions, and you've got to work through those. You can't just read it and go, oh, I don't like that. Why is it there? What's God doing? And ultimately, it pointed to Jesus on the cross. It points to us having a faith in him, points to us, the church, not having to go to war to spread the word of God. It calls us to spread the word by our relationships, that we would share with other people. We're in life with other people. We can open the Bible with other people. And then you have to have the consistent understanding of Abraham's covenant with us. If I'm being blessed, how can I be a blessing to others? If I understand these things a little better in other people, how can I bless others? Because we have two kingdoms at conflict. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God in August a little bit. But we have two kingdoms. The world that views things through me, me, me. How do I gain? How do I get? How do I control? How do I have the resources? What am I... And you have the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that says, how am I going to be a blessing? How do I let my life shine that I've been blessed by God and I'll be a blessing to others? And you can, you can kind of cut people right down the middle with that kind of questioning. Or you can examine their lives. Where it's all about them. It's all about how do I gain? How do I get? Yeah, you just got to turn on the TV and watch the news, how many of these situations we're watching around the world and our nation at the core is, I want what's mine. I want what's best for me. I don't want to be a blessing to the world. There are a lot of other really tough passages in the scriptures. This is one that burned my brain for a long time. I'm pretty settled and I'm okay with everything. I had to dance all around geography and history and the word to come to the conclusion that this was this was God showing he was just to the people that are there. Now, I have all the super cool commentaries and the resources and all the you have to have the drive to dig into those. Do not walk around with tough passages that hit you in the face, you're in your daily reading plan, you're in your Bible study, you're in Sunday school and a tough passage hits and you just go Ugh, I don't like that. Dig in. Ask good questions. And then keep in your head, how does this lead to human flourishing under the banner of God? How does this lead to God being a blessing? To us being a blessing to others? And you can usually pull that thread and find the right answers. And if you get hung up, that's what the church is for, to help you through it. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time together that we have in your word. And I pray, Lord, as we um, leave this day, we leave this space and we go about the rest of our Sunday, that you'll help us to seize opportunities to be a blessing to those who are around us. Help us, Lord, to live lives that would be um, put in a spotlight so people would see that as we have been blessed, that we want to be a blessing. And Lord, we're all prone to selfishness. We're all prone to kind of closing things off and being about ourselves. Um, Sometimes we've been burnt. Sometimes we're overwhelmed. Sometimes people take advantage. And I pray that you'll help us push all of that away. Um, Maybe have some good healthy practices of saying no to too many things. Um, But we would also uh, never forget that you bless us so we can be a blessing. So many people are going to come to a saving faith in you not because of eloquent words, but because we are giving of ourselves. And I pray, Lord, we would see um, great fruit in that, and we would want more and more opportunity to pour ourselves out. Help us do that, Lord. We love you. Amen.